take a look at this book. This book is uh, a love song. It's made up of multiple songs. Um, that's why they call it the Song of Songs that was given to Solomon. That uh, there are at least 14 different songs. There, there, some people draw the line with as many as, as 30 or more. It just depends on where you say a song begins or starts. But the poetry all has one purpose. The, po- the, the, the purpose of the Song of Songs given to Solomon is to celebrate marriage and celebrating marriage the way God intended marriage to be, what it, what it was supposed to look like, how we've come to the sense of the fulfillment of a relationship between a man and woman under God um, in, the, in the act of marriage. So as we discussed last week, last week in the song, uh, chapters, what did we do, two and three, we, we came to the wedding, the groom seeing the bride being carried in on Solomon's cart, um, the, the picture is, uh, in that part of the song, the picture is of their wedding day, and chapters four and five we're looking at tonight, that's the picture of the wedding night. So, remember I told you, when we go through the Song of Songs... Everything in the Song of Songs is not, let me see how I want to say it, the literal interpretation is not what you want to go for here. (laughs) This is a song, it's all about metaphor, just like a poem. It's all about metaphor. What is he describing? What's he talking about? The interesting thing about Song of Songs that's different from all other literature of its time is that the protagonist is a woman. Which is kind of interesting to understand, meaning the, the whole song is really sung from her point of view. And if you will, the, the antagonist in the song is her virginity. And she is a protagonist, and it's all about her journey moving from a young maiden, a virgin, to a wife. And her anxiety and fears and victories and all woven into the joys of marriage as God intended. Now the exciting thing as we look at it is it helps us gain insight into what the perfect picture is supposed to look like. What is it, what is it that when, when God, I think sometimes we, we discussed this earlier too, you know when when people look at a relationship, especially today, a relationship between man and woman, they would call a lot of the things that we'll talk about working our way through the Song of Songs is archaic, old thinking. It's not that way anymore. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Um, a young girl doesn't save herself until she gives uh, uh, away her virginity to her husband. But that's what's going to be being described tonight is this mode, this design and desire and I guess part of the challenge for us is you know when we look at the history of the church you line up the song of songs most people want to ignore it to be honest it's not on my top 10 list of books I love to teach however I think it's important to teach because it gives us that foundation to stand on says what is this supposed to look like in God's economy what does it look like to him the idea, the picture that we want to gain and the things that we want to understand is that, that God's not a prude, that, that, uh, 
that there are things that we're going to read about and, and discuss as we work our way through the Song of Songs, which is going to point to and, and describe the fact that, that God created and designed uh, marriage to be uh, the relationship in which God wants people to enjoy the act of making love. And so if we spent time teaching, even in Jewish society, they, they wouldn't discuss these things. The, the rumor is they wouldn't discuss these things until somebody was 30 years old. I, that's a rumor. And preachers like to repeat it. But the truth is, this is one of the things that they would teach their kids and their kids would grow up understanding so that when they reach the age and they're dealing with the anxiety of marriage and the fears and the making the decisions as young people about... Because you guys know kids have been the same throughout time, right? You, if you think the things that are going on now is like new, ooh, it just happened in the 20th century or 21st century or, uh, can't, you know, you're crazy. This stuff's been going on forever. Since there was a boy and a girl... They have always been in a hurry. But the point is, what God is teaching through, and what God wants us to see in Song of Songs, is, is look how beautiful it's intended to be by God. And so how, how often we have traded that beauty that God intended, we have traded it for some lie of the enemy. And then... You're ripped off. There's only you only get one night, like Song of Songs four and five. There's only one. Your whole life, my whole life. Now we get to chapter eight or chapter eight. Yeah, chapter eight will be round two. So uh, it's not all about just this one moment, but there is something special about it, and I think Song of Songs lays it out for us. So we want to be able to see it. Now, as we've been working our way through the Song of Songs, remember it's sung in three parts. Male part, female part, and the choral, uh, the choir, right, that is, is singing in response. So, the first uh, from Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through 16, this is the song of uh, the man. This is the male part. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. I'm just going to read through it. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is lost as young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone, and on it hang thousand shields, all of them, shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breeze and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of frankincense, for you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart <coughs> from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sanir and Hermon, from the dens of lions and from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How 
Much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride, honey and milk under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are like orchards of pomegranates with its choicest fruits, henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden flowing, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, and let its spices flow. And she responds and says, Let my love come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then back to him. So I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And she responds, verse 2, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Then he responds, Oh, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head to wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I put off my garment, how could I put it on? I, I have bathed my feet, how can I soil them? Then she responds, So my beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city, and they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adore you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved that you will tell him, I am sick with love. Now the choir responds, So what is your beloved more than any other beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than any other beloved, that you thus adjure us? And she responds, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy black as a raven, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And then the choir responds, well, Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? And she responds, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, to gather the lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And he grazes among the lilies. So this takes us through two of three songs about the wedding night. Song of songs. 
as it's called. And the first part begins with the flawless bride. It's a description from the man of the woman from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through 16. Uh, we'll, we'll take it in a little bit smaller chunk so we can kind of get all the metaphors and, and hopefully see all the things that God wants us to be able to glean. Let's pray. Father God, we just lift your word to you and we pray, Lord, that you would bless it. I ask God that you would open our eyes and our hearts that we can see the beauty of marriage as you describe it, the, the beauty of the marriage bed, even as you declared in the book of Hebrews that the, the marriage bed is undefilable. God, I pray that we would remember and recognize that this is something you created for us. This is something that you design and it speaks, uh, it speaks to and of uh, the unity and the intimacy that, uh, that two people can experience, the closest of all. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to it and help us see in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in the beginning, remember, the bride has been brought to the groom. And he begins in his song by telling her she is utterly beautiful everywhere. He's celebrating the pleasure of his bride, how amazing she is to him. And there's two things in the song, and you'll miss them if you don't understand the metaphors, that he's talking about with her. He's, he's telling her about her beauty, and he's describing her inaccessibility. Now remember, we talked about her inaccessibility. The antagonist of the song is her virginity, the fact that she has spent most of her life to this point protecting that and now in this point she's supposed to surrender it and the song from the man is a, a claim from him that i'm not going to take it i'm not going to take it you have to give it so the idea of the song and that's going to be woven in as we take a look he describes her eyes as dove's eyes we've already seen that in the poem earlier uh it's just a way of telling her that her eyes are beautiful it's Hiding behind her veil, you know, like a dove would hide in the cracks of the rock. And so he's saying, hey, your, your, your eyes are beautiful behind the veil. They're alluring. All of this song from him is about her drawing him to her. It's about his desire being awakened on their wedding night and the desire to come together and have sex. Now he's going to describe her hair. Now some of these things are weird to us, right? Your hair is like goats. And your teeth are like sheep. And, and we, have a, we have a hard time with it. You just keep in mind, it's poetry that's more than 2,000 years old. So for them, this was it. For us, we might have a different way of describing our, our love's teeth or their hair. But for them, we want to be able to understand the picture. He says... Your hair, it's like a, a flock of goats coming down the side of Mount Gilead, right? Leaping. The picture is that her hair is wavy, like, like goats jumping down hills are coming down, and, they're and it's black. So she has long, black, wavy hair, and, she, and he's, he's pointing it out, and there's a reason for that. And I don't want you guys to miss this, because it's going to matter later on when we study other sections of the New Testament. And that is that her hair was considered part of her sexuality long hair for a woman when, when a woman had long hair in that culture 
their thought process was she's going to be able to bear children. It was part of her, it showed part of her ability. That's just what they believed. Right? We have weird ideas today too, don't we? I'm sure we do. In a thousand years, they're going to look at some of the things we thought we knew, and they're going to say, well, those guys were so dumb back then. They used to take lithium batteries and hold it next to their head and talk on them for hours. Right? And we're smart enough to know you shouldn't do that. (laughs) There's stuff like that. Well, when we look at this, this is the description of her hair. Her hair is long, her hair is wavy, and it was part of her sensuality. So he's, as he describes it, he's, he's describing her vitality, the fact that, that uh, you know, in, in her hair, he can see the children that she's going to bear him. The, the beauty of her hair. This is the description that she gives. And then he talks about her teeth. They're like shorn ewes. So the, the U goes in and is shorn, and now you have a, a, a white, it's just down to the skin, a, a white sheep that's coming up. And so he's saying, hey, your teeth are white, and you have them all. <laughs> now today we have dentists, right? So you and I, probably well into our old age, will have all our teeth. How about 3,000 years ago? Do you think they had a dentist they went to that uh, cleaned and flossed and did all that? So it's not always a guarantee that the, the fine young person you would marry would have all their teeth. So he's saying, man, she's, you have all your teeth. You're, they're all together. They have twins. So you don't, you don't have one on this side and you're missing it on this side. You get what I'm saying? They're all together. They're all together. Now the point of that is he's celebrating her health. He's saying, you're healthy. And he's describing the the beauty of her health, the beauty of her vitality. All of these things are, are things that draw him to her. And so he describes them. He says of her lips, your lips are a scarlet thread. Now when we see that, we might immediately think, well, she has thin lips. No. It's the same word used in the book of Joshua. You guys remember the battle of Jericho? And what was it that Rahab was supposed to hang on her door so nobody came in and slaughtered all the people there? You guys remember? A scarlet thread. Now, if you're standing at the bottom of the wall, looking up at Rahab's house on the corner of the wall, how are you going to see a scarlet thread? Well, it's simple. The word doesn't mean thread. It's a cord. It's like tying a scarlet rope. It was a symbol or a sign. And it's something, it's the exact same phrase that's used here. Now, the, the, the point of it is not how big is it or how small is it. What's the point? What color is it? Red. Every culture across... Uh, Across the earth, I won't say the universe, because I don't know if there's anything else out there. <clears throat> Every culture emphasizes the color of red lips in their love poetry. And that he's doing the same thing here. He's saying, man, your, your lips are, are red. They're beautiful. He's describing every part of her body. And then he says this. He, he's going to talk about her speech, right? He says, your lips are a scarlet thread and your mouth is... Lovely. That word 
that's used for mouth there is 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 uh, not a word about describing her lips. That, that was just described. It's not the word for mouth. It's it's a word for her speech, the sound of her voice. So he's saying your your lips are are red and and he wants her lips. He wants her teeth. He wants her hair. He wants all of her. But now he's saying, I want your voice. I love your voice. The sound of your voice is beautiful to me. He describes her cheeks like two halves of pomegranate. So when you cut a pomegranate in half, open it up, it's all red, pink inside. It's, it's a picture of the blush on her cheeks. So he's saying of her cheeks, you know, the, the, he loves that youthful vigor, the, the blush that she has on her cheeks. But then he's going to now move to the concept of her inaccessibility. He says, but your neck, it's like a strong tower surrounded with shields of, of, uh, of mighty guard shields, right? He says, your, your neck is a tower of David built in rows of stone and on it hang thousands of shields, all of them shields of warriors. There's other scripture that discusses the concept of a strong tower. And the point of the strong tower is not to say how beautiful her neck is or whatever, but that it's protected. She's protected. She, she has the authority in this part of their relationship. You see, on this night, she's the only one who can give what she has. He can take it, but that's not the same. Are you guys with me? You understand what I'm trying to say? So he's saying of her, this is part of her inaccessibility, part of the fact that, that he wants her to know that, that he's not coming like a knight in shining ar- armor to conquer her, to devour her, to, to take from her what is his right to take as her husband and, and she as his wife, but rather he's, he's going to be discussing the idea of surrender. The idea of surrender, of her surrender to him, to give to him the thing that only she can give. Nobody else can do it. You think of all the stories of marriage in the Bible, all the relationships. You guys remember Jacob, right? He's one I always like to talk about, you know, that worked seven years for Rachel. You guys remember? And they pulled the switcheroon on him, right? There is now... A part of the ceremony in a Jewish wedding is lifting the veil and making sure that the woman under the veil is the one that you planned on marrying. And that has, takes its tradition all the way back to Jacob. Because she's covered in a veil. All he can see is her eyes. There's not an abundance of electric lights that they have to turn off and on back in those days. So when they went into the tent, it's dark in the tent. Jacob's excited. It's not till morning he wakes up and finds out, wait a minute, what happened? In that relationship that Jacob has with Leah, she's going to bear six sons for him. Rachel's going to have two. Leah's going to spend her whole life wanting to be loved by her husband like he loves Rachel. But ultimately only finding that in 
her praise of God until the end. You see, Rachel dies and is buried in Bethlehem. Leah is buried with Jacob. In the cave of Machpelah that you can still visit today that holds the bones of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah. We look at these pictures of, of marriage. There's only, even though Leah's the one who's given, right? She was given by her uncle Laban to Jacob. But even though she's given, she's the only one who could give what she has to give to her husband. Her husband can take it, but then you miss the opportunity to experience what it is that God has, the beauty that God has in the concept. Now, the reason I say this is Tower of David is speaking of <clears throat> this inaccessibility, a picture of what she has that only she can give because it's behind a thousand shields and mighty warriors and he's not going to uh, just come through and take it. It's because it's a military reference. In the middle of all this love poetry and pictures of gazelles and fawns and trees and lilies and flowers, you have a military reference using military terms. So, so I think that that's what he's doing. He's saying, look... I respect you. Your beauty is not weakness. Your beauty is strength. And because I respect you, <coughs> I want you to give what only you can give. And it brings him to describe now he's, he's come from her head and he's going to make it all the way to her breast. And then he's going to totally lose focus and that will be the end of all the description. So he comes down and he says of her breasts, your, your breasts are too far. So there's Two descriptions of her breasts here. Two fawns and two mountains. Now the point is not, the, the, the goal is not to describe them, how they look or what they are, but this, this picture. Fawns eating lilies. Every time in scripture you see this phrase, eating lilies. In fact, we're going to see it at the end, that he's in his garden and he's eating lilies. It's always a reference to sexual play. That it's, it's foreplay. It's part of, of that, the way that that was described. Fawns eating lilies. It connotes her beauty, her sexuality, and her life. And so he describes him first, but then he moves to describe his intent. Okay, look at it. She says, uh, Until the day breathes and shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. So he is now describing the fact that he is going to come to her. Remember earlier in chapter 3, she had said that between her breasts she has a pouch of myrrh. And it's his. And now he's saying, I'm coming to the mountain of myrrh. I'm coming in. He, he's describing his desire to, to be able to graze between her breasts. And so he's coming to that place. And he's describing him with uh, two very amazing and, and well-used uh, 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 incense smells in the Bible. Myrrh and frankincense. That's not something new to us, right? We've, we've heard of those terms before. Yeah? The three gifts Jesus was given, what were two of them? Frankincense and myrrh. If you do essential oils, I bet you have frankincense. Huh? 
So these are not, they're not new things to us. The idea of this same things from back then. They're, she's the, he is describing this. And I love what he says in verse 7 because his point when he gets to verse 7 is you are altogether beautiful. He's saying you are in every way everything that I want. You are altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in you. In Ephesians chapter 5, describing the roles between husbands and wives, the most famous because uh, they're the things that, that women throw in the face of men and men throw in the face of women, right? Uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Two phrases that are, that are often thrown back and forth. But there's more to it there because in Ephesians chapter 5, when it describes how a man is supposed to present his wife... A man is supposed to present his wife to the world, to their friends, to their acquaintances, to whoever is around, just like Jesus presents you to the Father. In Luke chapter 6, it says the same measure you use will be measured back to you. So when you're describing or talking about other people, just think about how you want Jesus to talk about you to the Father. It ought to be a little sobering. How are we to present our wives to the world. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. Which is a way of saying perfect. Or, as the Song of Solomon says, flawless. Now you and I, we all know we have flaws. Yes? Okay, we all got flaws, but the point that the Bible's saying is, it's not your job to point them out. It's not your job to point them out. Specifically, he's talking to men. Not your job to point them out. Your job is to say flawless. Perfect. You're the mirror. You're the reflection that develops within your bride. <coughs> you're, you're the one that develops within them the security for them to be able to be with you the way you want them to be able to be with you. And it doesn't happen through a critical spirit. Here, he says, man, you are altogether beautiful. There's no flaw in you. And now, again, he talks about the inaccessibility. Come with me from Lebanon. My bride, come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, the peak of Sanir, and Hermon. The peak of Amana, the peak of Sanir, and the peak of Hermon were all places that were thought of to be the abode of the gods. So he's now looking at her like a goddess on the top of her mountain. If, she, if he said Olympus, you guys would understand, right? But we're, we're using the language of the Middle East. So <clears throat> these are the terms. Hey, you're like a goddess on the top of your mountain. And the only way we can have what, what I want to have with you tonight is if you come to me, I can't go to you. In other words, I'm not taking it. I'm asking that, that you would give it. Depart the peak of Amana, the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions and the mountains of leopards. The goddesses of that day were thought to ride on the back of leopards and lions. And so it's not, he's not saying she's a god, she's a goddess. It's poetry. Okay, don't get yourself all wound up. But he is saying, man, that's how he sees her. That's how he exalts her. That's how he respects her. That's how he desires her. 
And he's calling for her to come to him. Now when we come to verse 9, still the man speaking. He says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. There's five times that this word bride is going to be used. All of them are in chapter 4 and chapter 5 verse 1. And they're all terms of your bride because now we have an opportunity to consummate our marriage. And in chapter 5 verse 1, the point is now you're moving from bride to wife. You're, you're not the virgin daughter anymore. You're my wife. It's a transformation that takes place in this picture of marriage. <clears throat> so, he says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart. Now, I wish they would use uh, literal translation sometimes because it's prettier. You have captivated my heart is literally, you make me breathless. Captivated my heart, I don't know why. Breathless is, sounds better to me. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's my head or my own experiences. But that's what he's saying. Literally, you, you, you make it so I can't breathe. I can't breathe when I'm near you. You rob me of my breath. You, you, you leave me breathless. One look at you and I'm breathless. Just one look at one jewel of your necklace. One jewel of your necklace. So usually... In the description, when the goddess was described coming down from her mountain, the goddess of love coming down from her mountain, she was naked, just wearing a necklace. And he says, just just the sight of your jewels. One jewel in your necklace. And And I can't breathe. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. He keeps using this phrase, my sister, my bride. It's not, it's not saying, you're literally my sister. What's he saying? He's back in Genesis. Remember when Eve was brought to Adam, what did he say? You are what? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. How does the Bible describe the union between man and wife? The two shall become what? One. That's all he's saying. You're now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The two shall become one. We're being united in this relationship. We're being united as God intended that to go, to be. The, the gift that God intended to be given, the way that it was intended to happen. He says, you're, <clears throat> you're so beautiful, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love? Now he's going to describe her love, the, the, the act of making love with her. He's saying it's better than wine. The fragrance of your oils are better than any spice. Your lips drip, drip nectar. A honey and milk are under your tongue. Each one of these descriptive words that he's using describes a sense, something that you smell or taste. So he's describing, he's using this to describe their lovemaking. Your lips drip nectar, honey and milk under your tongue, the fragrance of your garments like the fragrance of Lebanon. All of these things are are calling uh, him to her. He's describing this. And, and keep in mind, the way the, the, the breakdown of the song works, we've seen the marriage. Now, this is their time when they're alone. Him and her in the tent for the consummation of the marriage. And this is him being excited and aroused and drawn to her by her beauty and that which she has to give. And this is how the song is describing it all. In verse 12, 
Again, talks about her inaccessibility. He says, you are a garden locked up. Just picture, the word garden is like a, um, like a park. Uh, probably not a park like we would see it. Like, um, like a private retreat area. Yeah, like a rose, like, yeah, like the, like a rose garden that you might walk through. It's not the idea of, of garden like we would see garden, but a rose garden would be a good example of it. There's usually a pool, there's usually flowers, and just a, it was just a place to retreat. And he says of her, now it's obvious what he's talking about. He's talking about her virginity, that which he's come to take. That, that's which he's come as a, as a husband to partake in as they make love. He's saying, but your garden is locked, it's inaccessible. I'm not taking it. What does she have to do? She has to open her garden. And that's the phrasing that we're going to see in the poetry, right? This is what they're discussing. He's saying, your garden's locked up, my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. He describes her shoots. uh, It's just metaphors of of the pleasures that they can enjoy together as they make love. They're like an orchard of pomegranates, choicest fruits, henna, nard, nard, saffron, calamus, cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh, aloes, all choice spices. It's all something that's pleasurable, something that he wants, something that he desires. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from, from Lebanon. One of the cool things that he describes in this, that I don't want you to miss out on, he describes her as a well, uh, a spring. In other words, the picture of a, a spring or a well in a garden would have been that which provided um, the, the, the refreshment and the sustenance for the garden. But, but if, she was a, if she was like a, 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 a dug, uh, oh, what do they call them? English. Used to be my first language. <laughs> Somebody help me. Buried underground, fill up with water. Stash. How do I lose cistern? Alzheimer runs in my family, man. One day I'm going to be up here preaching and forget who I am. <laughs> Scary. So, doesn't describe her as a cistern, which must be supplied from another source, but as a spring. In other words, the ability to bring refreshment and to take care of this place, which he calls his garden. This, this place where they make love, where her body is given to him. And he's able to enjoy that gift that she gives. That place, all that refreshment, all that comes from her. She's the source. She's the source of it. Remember, she's the protagonist. She's the hero of the story. In a, in a world at that time that was all focused on patriarch, right? Father, man, you know, that, that was the picture of culture then. In the middle of that springs out this poem where she's the, the protagonist she's a hero this is god's description of marriage of what this is supposed to be like of what it is supposed to be so she becomes a source now look what he says in verse 16 awake O north wind O come O south wind blow upon my garden let its spices flow that word for wind is the exact same word when god breathed into man And he became a living being. It's a beckoning for the spirit. It's a beckoning for the spirit to to anoint. You know when they were married, they were married 
beneath the the hoopah. The hoopah was like a, a four posts and a canopy. So they're married under that canopy. But you know what that canopy became? The canopy over what? Their bed. Do you know what it signified? The wind. The ruach. The spirit. The covering of the spirit over the sanctity of marriage and the union between man and woman. This is the picture. And so he's, he's calling out. The reality is the world will tell you that the act of sex is just a physical desire that people have. It's something that, that, that man and woman have. Or, or it can also happen between people of the same sex. The, the same sex attraction is real. It's, it's not right, but it's real. And all of this is just chemistry. But God says in his word, it's spiritual. It's not just chemistry. And for those of us who have dined at this table, you know it's spiritual too. You can't argue it. You know it. And for those of us who have used it cheaply, given it cheaply or took it cheaply or did not consider the value the way that God considers it to be, we know that each and every time there's something that gets harder in our hearts or souls because the act that we think is just physical is spiritual too. Blow spirit, he says. Unlock her garden. Bless this moment. The spiritual act of, of making love. And look what, how she responds. Now this is her response to him. Let my beloved come to his garden. Eat the choicest fruits. Now what's she doing? She's talking about her surrender, right? She's giving herself to him. She's giving herself to him. And what does he say in the next verse? So I came to what? My garden. I came to my garden. It's his garden. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says in marriage that the woman's body does not belong to her but to the man. And vice versa, the man's body does not belong to him, but to her. The picture is, you are no longer your own. How are they going to say it in the Song of Songs? I am my beloved's, and he is mine. I'm his, he's mine. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh, my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then what does he say? <coughs> Part of the act, part of what would happen in the consummation in their culture is that the marriage would be consummated, the man would leave the tent, and he would go outside, and, and then he would visit the wedding guests who were there at the wedding. At that moment, they would present to the father of the bride the proof of her virginity, which typically was a little towel that they laid in the bed that would have the mark of the blood from her virginity on it, and they would, it was a seal to him that, hey, you did a good job. Your virgin bride came to the marriage bed as a virgin. And he would tell the people who are gathered, the wedding feast is going to be multiple days. We do a wedding, it's one day, right? We dance, we sing, we eat, we have all that fun, the bride and groom go away. Well, in that culture, the bride and groom went away right after the service. They went straight, the hoopah, went over the marriage bed, in their tent. They consummated the marriage. It was celebrated that 
that she was indeed a virgin. And then he would say to his guests, eat, drink, enjoy. The Bible describes a wedding feast that lasts a week, seven days. And during that seven days, the groom, the husband, is going to go into, the wife is never going to come out. She's going to be sequestered in the tent. He's going to go into her and, and meet her needs and take care of her and love her. And he's going to come out and make sure his guests are okay. That's just part of the culture. That's how things happen. And that's what she's describing in the next part of the song as we come to what happens. So he's saying, he's saying, look, we, we made love. I gathered all this and then eat, friends, drink, be drunk with love. It's like the picture of him discussing with the guys outside of the tent. Now, then I want you to see that we move into another song. And then we're going to move back from the voice of the man singing. We're going to now go to the voice of the woman. And she's going to describe her experience. And she describes it very differently. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. I was sleeping, but I was awake. What is she describing? She's describing a woman's unique ability to have her mind in two places at one time. And I, I, at least I know, I don't, maybe you guys are different, but my wife has this ability like no other. And so <clears throat> she's saying, my, my head is in two places at once. And she now is going to describe that moment when she surrendered herself to her husband. But she begins it by saying, my mind was in two places at once. In one sense, I was with him. That's the sense in which she was asleep. She's enjoying that time loving her husband. But on the other side of her mind is awake. She's having all, she's wrestling with these other thoughts. Now, in chapter 3, we talked about she had this anxiety about her virginity. She had this anxiety. She's been protecting this all this time, and now that's going to be gone. That part of her life's going to end. She's going to be transformed <coughs> from a young maiden into a wife. And so there's anxiety in that. Well, this describes the, the, the time in which that takes place. So what does she say? I, I was awake, I was asleep. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Now, this sounds so pretty, but the word for knocking is not like he's lightly knocking on the door. She sees him like a, a bull banging on the door, like, let me in by the hair of my chinny chin chin. He's pounding on the door. This is, this is her experience, okay? So you guys know men and women see things different, right? So she sees him. You know, it's still her love, but she sees his desire, his passion. She's at the door, that which has, is separating them, and he wants in. Same way that he described as a garden-locked spirit, open the garden, surrender what you have. You know, that's how he described it. She describes it as him banging on the door. He, he wants to get in. He has this desire and passion for her. In fact, this is the words she gives him. <clears throat> open to me, my sister, my love. Now, we just talked about this with garden, right? You guys get where we're having the two perspectives? I hope. My dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my, my locks with the drops of the night. So he's saying, man, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. And he's saying, I'm naked. I put off, what's it say? I have put off my garment. How could I put it on? I'm outside your door. Okay, it's not literal. It's not describing him outside of her room trying to get in. It's describing them together making love. 
He wants in. She's the only one who can let this take place. He's saying, I put off my garment. I bathed my feet. I don't want to leave. I don't want to go. This is all I want. All I want is you. Is, is like the, the attitude that he has. <clears throat> then she says, My beloved put his hand to the latch. That's not what it says. So, I wrestle with whether or not I want to tell you what it says. So, I'm going to. So, if you don't want to know, this is the time to plug your ears and go, la, 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 la. So it says, my beloved has put his hand to the latch. That word for latch is not latch. That word there is the word solely hole. He put his hand to the hole, and it's not the word heart. It's the word womb. My womb was thrilled within me. So this is describing something totally different. If you think you know what it is, you're right. If you're confused, <laughs> call your parents tomorrow and ask them. I'm, I'm not sure I want to describe it for you. No, I'm kidding. You can ask me. I'll be happy to tell you. So, so the, where it says my heart. Now, why do you, why do they do it this way? Because sometimes this word is 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 uh, um, translated as heart, but but never that way when it's talking about a woman. When it's talking about a woman, it's always her womb. Because it's talking about the seed of passion. It's, it's a word literally that, that oftentimes is described as bowels for a man. Uh, which we translate as heart because it's a seat of emotion. And, but whenever it's talking about the seat of emotion for a woman, it talks about her womb. Okay, so she, she says, uh, I arose to open to my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers with liquid myrrh and the handles of the bolt. Um, that's not there either. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. So what she's describing is, she opens, he has entered into her, and it's over. Really fast. <laughs> now, why was this? I just, want to, I just want to remind you, I know it's funny for us, but this was told to their young people. So, so they were not surprised. Because it's a pretty good description if this is your first time with each other. It's a pretty good description of the expectation and the reality. It's a pretty good description, but it's a description of innocence lost on two, by two people at the same time, in the same place, God's way. And so it's, it's with one another that that they discover this. So when she says, I looked for him and he was gone. Okay, remember I told you what happened. Immediately after, what happens? He gets up, he grabs the, the rag, he goes outside the tent. And it's like she said, wait a minute, what just happened? Okay, I opened up, I gave. She's, she's given her virginity, he's taken it, but now she feels abandoned she that anxiety's coming back okay you guys tracking with me she's she's feeling this anxiety she says i opened to my beloved but my beloved had turned and gone my soul failed me when he spoke i, I sought him but i found him not 
So he's not totally gone, right? She can hear him speaking, but she doesn't see him. It's just describing part of that culture. But I found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Then she said, the watchmen, they found me as they went about the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil. That's a description of her losing her virginity. That's how she saw it. The guardsmen were those who protected her virginity, and she's describing it now as being taken. It's, it's, it's gone. That part of her life, she's moving. She's being trans, transformed from that part of her life to a new part of her life. They took away my veil, the watchmen of the walls. Not literally somebody beat her up. Otherwise, in the next part of the song, there'd be a guy saying, where'd you get your black eyes? Who beat you? What's going on? Right? So it's not literal. What is it? It's figurative. What is she describing? She's describing that part of her life that she's left. And she's, she, she's, there was some pain involved. There was some things that happened. She looks and she says to the daughters of Jerusalem, the choir, she says to the choir, if you find my beloved, tell him I'm sick with love. I'm, I'm hurt. I'm, I'm feeling really emotional. Where'd he go? What's happening? Okay, this is all to be taught and understood so that it wasn't a surprise. It was, it was something that they talked about so that they would understand what was going on, what was happening. She said, my, my soul failed me. Literally, she's saying, I died when he spoke. I, I died. So she's, she's just the height of emotion, this burden or sickness with love. So then the, the choir responds to her. Well, what is your beloved more than any other? What's, so, what's the big deal about, about this guy? Oh, most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than any other beloved that you adjure, that you ask us to look for him? So then she moves rather from her pain and, and the emotional insecurity that she's feeling in the moment. She moves from that and feeding that anxiety to describing what she loves about her husband. So she moves to that and she says, now her response, verse, verse 10, my beloved is radiant and ready. Remember the woman, it was desirable for her to be uh, pale, not tan. The man it was desirable for him to be tan. So that's what she's describing. He's radiant. He's ruddy. He's tan. He's distinguished among 10,000. He'd stick out. Even if there were 10,000 guys, he'd be the one. His head is the finest gold. She values him. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. Same kind of idea, just a woman's description of, of his hair. And by the way, that was also considered part of his sexuality. Man's sexuality was also considered to be his hair. So she, she sees this. His eyes are like dove's eyes beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies. Remember what I told you lilies spoke of, right? Sensuality, sexual play. It's some place that she wants to be. Um, Dripping liquid myrrh, his arms, rods of gold set in jewels, his body polished ivory bedecked with sapphires, his legs are alabaster columns, strong set on bases of gold, his appearance is like Lebanon choices of the cedar, his mouth is most sweet, he's altogether desirable. What is how she's describing him? Is she describing him in a different way? 
He's altogether desirable. He's what? Same word he used of her? Flawless. He's flawless. This is my beloved. This is my friend. I love that line. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So then the daughters of Jerusalem respond, Where did he go? What happened? Is he gone? Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Look what it says in the next line. It says, My beloved has gone down where? To his garden. So is he gone? No. Is he back? Yeah. He's back. <laughs> yeah. He says he's back to the garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens, to gather. There's the phrase again, to gather the lilies. So he's come back to make love to his wife again. To celebrate their union. And she says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. I'm his, he is mine, and he grazes among the lilies. So the anxiety, the wedding night, she, she sees it, she feels it. And then he comes back to her and you have a week-long celebration, which we just started. So there's uh, seven more chapters, very similar, that we are still going through. So a lot of great things that we have yet to discuss, but you guys just survived the wedding night. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you, God, that it, this, the word of God is not prudish. It's not all the things that the church history made it. It's not all the weird things that we get in our head. And God, you, you expected this to be a part of our life and something that could be celebrated, something that you created, something that could be given, not taken, something that, that uh, was special. And it was to be to find its its uh, reality in marriage. God, I just pray that we would be able to see the beauty of what you describe, the beauty of the relationship as you see it, the incredible love that these two feel for one another, the things that are being described. God, I pray that we might understand your purpose. Not afraid of it but understanding your purpose, what it's intended for, and how it's supposed to look. See, God's plan for it is not some weird, twisted-up thing that they made it in the Middle Ages, and it's not some rip-off that they've made it today, but it's something beautiful, something that God describes through this song of songs that was given to Solomon. God, I pray that you bless our night, And help us grow daily in our understanding of you and your purposes for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.